Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. This episode is brought to you by Helper. Are you in search for the perfect health insurance? Well, look no farther because they are the ultimate platform that revolutionizes the way that you find, enroll, and manage your health coverage. HealthBird offers an innovative solution that is tailored just for you. They have a lightning fast search engine that you can effortlessly compare health insurance quotes in milliseconds. There's no more tedious hours of browsing endless websites or spending hours on the phone with insurance agents. They offer a user-friendly app available on iOS and Android, which puts the power of managing your health insurance right at your fingertips. So again, you know, don't let the complexity of health insurance overwhelm you. Join Helper community and experience a seamless, intuitive platform that puts you in control. So get a quote today at healthbird.com forward slash dealmakers. This episode is brought to you by Bupos. Attention entrepreneurs, are you ready to take your business aspirations to new heights? Allow me to introduce you to Bupos, the ultimate solution for finding and funding your SaaS and subscription-based business acquisitions. With Bupos, you'll experience a seamless and worry-free process. They offer flexible funding and require absolutely no personal guarantee. I mean, again, you can go there, you can explore over a thousand opportunities pre-approved for financing, ensuring that you invest in a business with true profit potential. Bupos has got you covered. Their team actually provides one-on-one advisory support to help you making informed decisions. And on Bupos, you gotta remember, they've already approved over 700 million in funding and they've written over 3,000 businesses, finance hundreds of successful business acquisitions and have an impressive 4.7 out of five stars on Trustpilot. So you should go to bupos.com forward slash dealmakers, and that is bupos as B-O-O-P-O-S dot com forward slash dealmakers. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So super excited about the guest that we have today. He's done it multiple times and uh, also successfully so, you know, the last one, you know, just went through a really interesting merger, but uh, we'll get to that in just a little bit. But again, you're going to find it super inspiring. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Courtney Gerting. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Alejandro. Thanks for having me. So originally, you were born out of Minnesota. You know, it sounds like you were there quite a bit. So give us a walk through memory lane. How was life over there? It was good. Yeah. So I grew up in Minneapolis, Minnesota, just north. I went to, um, after high school, didn't quite know what I wanted to do. Ended up doing community college and then um, found myself at University of Minnesota. Did I... uh, study abroad to Japan. And it was that trip that kind of made me land on computer science. Um, And so I was inspired by uh, reading Wired Magazine, you know, uh, different programming books. But and that trip, just talking to people abroad through like the internet was this really surreal. And I was fascinated by um, the culture there and kind of the tech forwardness of that area. And so when I came back to the University of Minnesota, I decided to go all in on computer science. Ended up graduating, worked at a small company. We did vertical CRMs, one for the financial industry, one for real estate, and one in healthcare. 
And that healthcare one ended up kind of a early seed. It grew into something that kind of stayed with me in my later life and was the genesis of my last company. Amazing. So, uh, so one of the pivotal moments was definitely working at Dig. So, uh, how do you land, you know, at Dig? Yeah. So this was um, 2006. I really wanted to uh, kind of uh, Silicon Valley was sort of calling my name in a way, but I didn't. I didn't initially move. Um, I was a little bit. Uh, I guess fear was this was there. I just bought a house in Minnesota. Felt I was rooted, but I had a couple friends that moved out there. Um, one of them, Leah Culver, who's a great engineer, and she's done things and sold companies to Twitter and things. Um, she went out in 2006 and started building a lot, networking a lot, doing very exciting projects. That gave me the motivation to kind of say, hey, I really need to go do this. And I finally did so in 2008. And I wanted to live and work in San Francisco. And there weren't that many companies at the time in San Francisco. Um, so I applied to Stumble Upon and Dig. I got offers by both. I chose Dig. And um, it really set off an incredible network of people, a very interesting company at the time, um, uh, trying to rebrand themselves into something stronger. And I, I met lifelong friends and I, I learned a lot from building, architecting, scaling businesses or scaling, you know, feature sets. And that gave me the confidence then in 2020, 2010 to venture out on my own. So then let's talk about that, you know, venturing out on your own. What happened? Yeah. So I had a few ideas. Um, one of them was a, uh, a project that called Follow Style. It was kind of pre-Pinterest. We did curation and fashion decor and things. I had another one where I was this 8-bit avatar called 8-bit um, that kind of hit the scene in, in 20, uh, started in 2010, got a little bit bigger in, in, in 2011 um, on Twitter with Tech Twitter, um, later became an NFT project for kind of a fun thing on the side. Um, I also uh, created a mobile game. You know, mobile app development was, was uh, piquing my curiosity. And in that, uh, collaborated with a friend and we did some kind of a tweak on mobile advertising because we thought it sucked at the time. People were putting small banner ads everywhere. And so we did rewards for virtual achievements and uh, real rewards for virtual achievements, created a company around that. I mean, it's called Keep. And that we hired a really amazing early team. And um, that was a fun adventure from uh, starting in 2010. So with Keep, what was the uh, business model? How were you guys making money? Yeah, so it was kind of a double-sided marketplace. This is um, before programmatic advertising came in um, in a big way. And so we found games or other applications that had um, basically uh, moments where uh, their customers were really engaged, maybe beating a level or, or getting a high score or completing a to-do list. In those moments, we would um offer a reward it could be virtual currency in that app or it could be a real reward like you get done running in uh, my fitness pal and uh propel could give you a, a powder pack that you could claim and go to a store and redeem and so it was brands being there at your highest moments of achievement getting you rewards and it was just a different kind of mobile advertising engagement play and it was 
we, we had a BD team that would go out and talk to all these devs. And then we, I was on the CTO, um, the CTO, and so I built a tech stack. And basically what we ended up doing is scaling the um, kind of the rewards inventory. And how much money do you guys say raise for that company? Um, total, we raised uh, $32 million from 2010 to, I think it was 2016. And you've also, yeah, I mean, you, you've raised quite a bit, you know, throughout your journey, uh, money from VCs, you know, over a hundred million. So I guess, what are some of the things that you've uh, learned from, uh, you know, dealing with venture capitals? Yeah, well, one, you definitely need to have a process. So, and, and um, you, so, you know, typically I think the traditional thing would be you kind of create your target key, key partners, you know, your, your personal tier one, tier two, tier three. You have to really um, polish your pitch, and it's different at each stage. You know, the earliest stage, it's it's team, it's vision, it's energy. It's uh, are you doing something um, that you feel you have an unfair advantage in, um, uh, and then it just becomes very metric based. You know, after Series A, and and so do you have the right metrics and. You have to find people who may or may not, um, you know, for example, you might have to go a PE route if you're not a uh, private equity route, if you're not growing at the multiples that like perhaps an Andreessen Horowitz would look at. So you have to adjust your thinking and pre- perhaps targets depending upon your business and the scale of that business. So what have you also experienced, you know, between bootstrapping like you've done with other projects to, for example, you know, raising money the way that you guys did it with Keep. Yeah. So with with um, with Ease, my last company, it actually started out as a side project. Um, I, as kind of mentioning, um, I met my co-founder in Minnesota when I was. We did that um, CRM for the healthcare industry, and he was a an insurance broker by trade. Uh, but very tech forward, meaning uh, trying to adopt anything in technology to help his business uh, grow. And so I chatted him about different feature sets, products, you know, got doing customer research and we hit it off well. Well, uh, while I was out building and working in Silicon Valley, he, um, he left the insurance industry and kind of worked on tech plays to help insurance brokers leverage technology. And he realized that he couldn't um, do it with off-the-shelf software products. They're catered to larger insurance brokers. He wanted to help the small, medium businesses and the insurance brokers that helped those businesses. And so he contacted me, and this was roughly like June of 2012, saying, "Hey, I need I need a platform for this, you know, the smaller kind of broker uh, that helps customers that have employers from two to five hundred employees." And he had a couple contractors and a couple quotes. I gave him some feedback and I gave him kind of like, hey, option A probably won't work. Option B could work, but I'll give you option C, you know, and this is where I came in. I said, I'll do this on the side. Um, I I know a lot about this industry. I'm excited about it. And uh, we came up with an agreement. And so that I started my nights and weekends doing this because I really wanted to make about $5,000 a month. And I figured I could do this as a side hustle to do that. And eventually, um, I 
told them I would, you know, deliver kind of the first version and, you know, around 90 days. And then he was a very good salesperson, had a very good network as, you know, I think as you, you and a lot of your previous guests uh, are aware, distribution's everything. And so he had a, a really good, you know, sales um, acumen and, and had a good network. So after the MVP was created, about 90 days later, we were ramen profitable. And so it had immediate product market fit. So my side project turned into a lot of late nights and all my weekends. I eventually had to make a decision on continuing with, with Keep or going all in at ease. And after about four years, I decided to go all in on ease just because I thought that it would be too much of a missed opportunity to not throw myself at it uh, 100% of the time. So now... In this case, I mean, what did having immediate product market fit look like? Yeah, so really it came in as once we um, we had a big vision for what Ease could be. And just for some background, Ease is a employee benefits platform. And you can think of it as a, uh, a Zenefits or a Gusto or a Rippling or a Namely, but through the traditional insurance broker. So a traditional insurance broker, they have lots of clients already, um, and but they don't have technology. So they're dealing with paper, fax, Excel, lots of different web portals. We do all that in, in one platform. So we combine um, employee benefits management, onboarding, payroll connections, care connections, all in one. And our goal was, hey, if we, we get the broker's trust, they will onboard all of their clients. And we don't have to knock on the door and have a huge sales team trying to call all these employers. The brokers will just do that for us. And if we needed to make the platform easy to use. And hence why we called it Ease. Took me a couple of years to get the domain name Ease.com, but finally did it. I was proud of that moment. And, the, uh, and what immediate product market fit was, we had big goals and dreams, but we started really small. We started with uh, in the state of Minnesota, and every employer, when they want to do what's called medical underwriting, um, let's say they got a, uh, a big increase in their, their rates for the year. That's their company of 10 employees. They get a big rate increase. It's going to be very expensive next year to continue with the same carrier. What they do is they have to go and fill out like four different health applications for the four different carriers in Minnesota. It's very tedious very time consuming. It annoys employees because they're filling out the same thing four times. We basically package that up so an employee could do that once. The broker would be aware uh, we're getting rid of all the paper, you know, and we make sure that's filled out accurately and legibly. <laughs> and that all then at the end of the experience, it's like a DocuSign, you know, you go fill it out once, all four forms are presented to you. You can review them and sign you're done. Streamlines the process immensely. Well, we started with just that, that feature set alone. And the product market fit feedback was people loved it and they kept asking for more features immediately. So they, they used it on one group, they wanted to use it on another, but they demanded, hey, I need you to do X though. I need you to do Y. I need all these different feature sets. So when you have someone wanting to reuse it, but pretty much demanding that you add a lot more functionality, you kind of know you got something. So they're excited to use it, but they wanted more. And so we gave them more. 
over the over a couple of years of bootstrapping, we got to a million in revenue. And again, this is all on the side. This is like just me uh, working in San Francisco in the evenings. My co-founder at the time uh, ended up being in Las Vegas, and it was just like a couple of us jamming away. Hey guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that. You know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance you know that would carry me through the process whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition so that gap that i found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when i met my co-founder at pantera mike Severson, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com, and we would love to take a look at helping you out. So then how did you guys go about raising money as well for this? How much have you guys raised today? Yeah, total was $68 million. It really started out with the following. Uh, Zenefits came on the scene, and they did something... I, they lit a fire on the whole HR and sure tech space. They raised a lot of money and they used that money to call every employer in America and basically say, hey, your current broker sucks. You need to use our platform. Everything's all in one solution. And that made every employer talk to their broker and, and say, hey, um, do you, uh, this company Zenefit's calling, do you have anything that does everything online? They went out searching for it and they found ease. So we started getting a lot of calls um, from players. And so we couldn't really meet the demand that we knew was coming. So bootstrapping gives you a lot of flexibility, but you grow slower if you're just using your profits. We knew that because of the war chest that Zenefit has, we're going to lose and miss an opportunity if we do not also try to grow faster. So in 2015, we set out to go raise money. Um, and I thought because of my connections that it was going to be easier, especially because we already had a lot of revenue and we were profitable. And I was, I was wrong. I, I, my first two people that I thought were like shoe-ins on investment said no. And they said no because we were remote. I was in San Francisco. My co-founder was in Las Vegas. Um, he's not a traditional, you know, tech person. He's a, um, and so they just they wanted us under one roof. And even though I said, "Hey, if this works out well, we'll likely move here," um, I had to change that pitch. And so on the third 
conversation, I said, you know, David's moving to San Francisco. We're going to be working together. He's going to move in like a month. And every, it just, that was never a yellow or red flag from anyone there on. And then Freestyle Capital um, led the round, but we had um, Upside Partnership, Kent Goldman, um, Samil Shaw from um, Haystack, and a, a lot of other great um, angel investors uh, come in and help lead that seed round, which was uh, $2.1 million. That's amazing. So, uh, and then how did that uh, grow over time? Because I believe that you guys, uh, prior to the transaction, you guys had raised uh, close to $70 million, correct? Yeah. So how that kind of progressed was in 2016, there was this little snap of uh, um, SaaS not doing very well. It was a very cold market. And it was short-lived, but it was, it was real for us. We felt that. And one of our investors that didn't get a, a, a big of a bite, so to speak, they didn't invest as much as they were hoping to. There just wasn't room for that. They basically said, hey, we'll leave in early A. You might not be totally ready for it, but um, we're there for you. And that was Metamorphic, which is now Compound. And they, they helped uh, forget that exact amount, but that was uh, roughly $2 million. And so that was an insider kind of thing to get us. It was, we didn't need it as a bridge, but it was just to grow and, and add more to the people to the team. Then we raised, I think, the following year um, from Propel Ventures, and we raised a proper A round. And um, Ryan Gilbert and David Mort at Propel Ventures were were big believers in us, and they had other uh, companies like Guideline. You know, it's a four hundred one k big company. Um, they'd done investments in like Coinbase, and so kind of the the new fintech or, or insurer tech kind of play. So that aligned really well with them. We then went on to um, uh, kind of, we went a little bit more of the PE route. And and just to be, we just didn't have, we had good numbers, but we didn't have the numbers at like a benchmark or Excel, or we talked to them, but they, they, um, they wanted us to grow a little bit faster. We couldn't uh, at the time. And so we, we ended up, this is the first time for me, you know, being investing in only kind of traditional VC to kind of see what uh, more of the PE world would be. And that was Centana Growth, Centana Growth Partners. Uh, great team there. They uh, led our Series B. That was $19 million. And then, um, and then Spectrum Equity came in on Series C for $41 million. Nice. Now, talk to us about the recent sale. Because there was a recent transaction that uh, that has happened here with this. Yeah. So if you would ask me a year ago, would would we be sold, and would we have sold to um, Employee Navigator? I would have said no. Uh, so these things happen out of nowhere sometimes. And if you build a big business uh, and and you, ha- you treat your customers well, you know good things can happen. In this case, it did. We had our biggest competitor, uh, Employee Navigator, approach us. They're really big on the East Coast. They deal with um, companies a little bit bigger. They're in, you know, same business model. They go direct to, they sell through the insurance broker. They're not calling employers directly like a lot of these gustos, benefit, namely companies do. And so they're very aligned. And they're also... Um, Carrier and payroll agnostic, meaning they're not creating their own payroll company. They're not 
you know, they work with every insurance company. The goal is just to be a, a hub for um, the marketplace and choice of, of brokers and their employer clients and how the data gets entered. So we're kind of the system of record, so to speak, for the employee benefits choices that these employees make. And then we send everything electronically through APIs, um, et cetera, to these insurance carriers. And so they were, um, they had a little bit more employees. We at the time had roughly 3.5 million employees that we managed employee benefits for, roughly 85,000 employers. And um, their, their average employers were a little bit larger. So, you know, we Ease was 43 employees on average. There's over 100. And so they, um, similar kind of employee and customer count, but they had a lot more employees on their platform. They owned, again, kind of the East Coast side. We did really well, and we had a strong foothold on the West Coast. They said, hey, we have a lot of different customers. I'm sorry, a lot of the same customers. Um, and I think it would be great if we kind of partnered together instead of compete together. And we decided that, uh, that kind of made sense. And we wanted to go through an LOI process. Um, that LOI kind of happened, um, I guess December of late December of last year. And then we did a, the diligence was roughly just over three months and, and we agreed to terms and, so yeah, we did a merger acquisition, and now Ease is with Employee Navigator, and we have 13 million employees collectively that are managed, and I believe that we'll be on the way to do pretty much uh, half of all small, medium businesses in the next few years in America, representing close to 30 million employees. And I heard that uh, it's rumored to be close to a billion, and eh, the uh, the 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 resulting entity. So. So really, really good stuff here. Yeah, it's it's a sizable company, and um, we'll continue to definitely be in the billions uh, beyond. So I guess uh, you know, obviously, to to get it to this point, you know, you you definitely have had you know the opportunity of dealing with people uh, and uh, really experiencing leadership at its best. I mean, what have you what have you learned, and what are your beliefs around leadership? Yeah, I think the biggest one is I'm actually a, a big believer in uh, do more with less and have constraints on yourself and team. So it's interesting. We made the most, we, we did the best and persevered the most when we had, I would say, um, more constraints on our capital. We made more mistakes when we had lots of capital. You know, hiring too fast, um, and 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 I think it's so less is more. Um, basically, constraints can be a powerful motivator, and I think you can you can really um, amplify your smaller teams to do more. So that's key: keep teams small, keep them motivated, you know, and um, and have that kind of constraint. Another one is is really I found. As you're hiring and as you're growing, we had to consistently, repetition is key. So keep your business model simple, easy to explain. Keep your, um, the, your values of your company simple. You don't need 10 of them. You know, three is enough, right? And repetition, 
What do you do? How do you service your customers? How do you care? Repeat it always. You got to be a broken record because you might say it once at an all hands meeting. And then if you don't say it again for another couple months, 10, if you're growing fast, 10% of the people have never heard you say it. And so, and, you know, fast forward then six months, it, you know, a third of your company's never heard you say this. So you feel like you're saying these things once in a while, but you got to constantly repeat it. So keeping things simple, constantly repeating, um, lead by example, you know, uh, really care, do the work and show up. Um, I made a couple mistakes of, I've, I thought I was delegating a lot, but I kept on probably taking on too much personally. So be really aware of, you gotta, you know, you gotta be in the trenches sometimes with your team, but you also have to delegate and, and consistently motivate, um, and, and offer up, uh, it's the only way to expand. Your goal is to, um, have your team be able to, uh, automate themselves out of a job or, you know, grow themselves out so that the company can grow, including yourself. Like you don't want to be needed in the weeds. Now, imagine if I was to bring you back in time, you know, maybe to that moment where you were still at Dig and, and thinking about starting something of your own. Imagine if you had the opportunity of giving that younger self one piece of advice before launching a business, what would that be and why, given what you know now, Courtney? I would say that, um, for example, I wish I would have given uh, a couple of things a little bit. Don't chase the first thing always immediately. So I had a lot of different ideas on, on the plate. And sometimes having a little bit of momentum just pulls you. You have this inertia and you just go. And so I had a four or five things that I was really excited about. Curiosity was great. I had the time to explore them. And we got a seed, uh, basically a term sheet. And, and I was excited about the, you know, the rewards platform, but there was other big things out there in curation space and Pinterest was coming on and that term sheet kind of just like pulled me and I had to give up all these other things without the proper research. I know timings there and it was, and it led to some, some ex very wonderful friends, a great business and a lot of lessons learned, but I feel like a lot of people um, chase the first thing that they kind of see. And, and um, you don't want to delay forever. But if you get inertia behind something, you might look back five years and been like, why did I do that? And it was just because you just got emissionally down that path. So just make sure that it's something you really want to do for a decade. These things definitely take a decade or more to play out in any big way. Um, I think taking venture capital is um, necessary at times, but less so than most people think. I think the biggest lesson that I learned on this is um, it, it really make sure that you think you need it. It's needing for scale. It's a certain type of thing. Um, bootstrapping is, is in, or building a cash flowing business uh, can, can net out a lot more, I would say, liquidity and and better results for for you personally um than doing the vc game but it is it it changed my life um i i would say that i wish i would have been a little bit more cash restraint on the money sometimes you're kind of told go higher higher grow 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 
And um, you don't always need to go do that. You should you should do it in a. Uh, I would say. Uh, um, I learned a lot of lessons from from overhiring, um, but at the at the end of the day, that's kind of what I would do is say, hey, to summarize it, um, term sheets uh, it will build inertia, and and you make sure that you're really excited about it for the ten year journey ahead. Amazing. So, currently, for the people that are listening, that would love to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to do so? Yeah, so um, Courtstar, C-O-U-R-T-S-T-A-R-R on Twitter, um, at Courtstar. And then I have a fund called letsgo.fund, and you'll find some of the investments that I've done and some more contact information there. Please reach out. I, I you know, I'm uh, going to continue to build, buy, and invest in businesses, and I'm excited to connect with uh, everyone in your excellent audience that you have. So thank you. Amazing, Kearney. Thank you so much. And uh, yeah, again, you know, anyone that is listening, you know, feel free. You know, now you know. Eh? But uh, anyhow, Kearney, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Thank you. I appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, Share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.